Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. John chapter 5, today I want to talk to you about the work of God. The work of God. What do you think of when you think about the work of God? What's your first thought? Is it some kind of grand miracle like the splitting of the skies and the glorious sunbeam with the angels going, ah, in the background? You know, I mean, just that's how we perceive of the work of God so often, isn't it? Well, if it, you know, wasn't an unbelievable occurrence or event, I'm not sure it was all God. Sometimes today, We think of the work of God as like this mysterious spiritual thing. And it it has to kind of have that mystery to it or probably isn't the work of God. What is it that God's work includes? These are the things I want us to consider this morning. I want us to look at these things. And really for the next several chapters in the Gospel of John, chapters 5 through 11, John does something in his writing that is helpful for us. He brings Jesus to the center of one situation after the other. He reveals who he is through what we've come to know as like the I am statements. And then through a miracle that demonstrates his being and his character. And then through a discourse that kind of explains it. And so we'll be working through these little by little so that we can bring to full understanding who Jesus Christ is. And I want us to see that that in the work of God, it, it, it touches every facet of life, but it always centers in one person, and that's the person of Jesus. So the first thing that we need to look for is Jesus because he becomes the plumb line against which all of life is aligned with. He becomes the ruler against which all of life is measured by. And until we see Jesus, we cannot either know it is the work of God, nor understand our life in light of God's work. And let me say this, friends. Any spiritual work that doesn't center in Jesus is simply satanic. The Bible tells us that there are many spirits in the world but there is only one Holy Spirit. And if the Spirit, the ideology, the paradigm, whatever the case may be, doesn't point to Jesus with all praise and honor and glory, then it is maybe explicitly, maybe implicitly, very likely the one who masquerades as an angel of light in order to deceive or accuse but ultimately to condemn. That's why in all of life, understanding the work of God, you must look for Jesus. He is the center in which all of God's work dwells. And that's what I want us to see today, that Jesus reveals that he is God so we can believe and follow him. We're going to learn three lessons from this passage today that help us understand the work of God and how it is that Jesus centers this work in our life. Let's go to verse 1 of John chapter 5 and we'll read first of all the first nine verses. 
After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Let's stop there for just a moment. Jesus returns to Jerusalem for the Holy celebration, the feast of the year. And Jerusalem is that location which is the center of religious life for the Jews. It's interesting that John does this um, um, kind of location centrality in introducing us to Jesus. We've seen that everything revolving around Jesus has taken place in one of two places, either in Galilee or in Jerusalem. And it's interesting how it is that Jerusalem is the center of religious life, but really Galilee becomes the originating point of Jesus' earthly ministry in John's gospel. And John is introducing something to us as he brings him back to Jerusalem for the, shall we say, slightly tentious moments with the religious leaders and the religious people. We know that this is a significant location because John gives extensive details in describing this pool. It's a pool at the Sheep Gate. There's a pool that that people believed had some kind of healing power to it. It had five colonnades around it. And so all of these descriptions, and in in many ways, many uh, uh, um, uh, scholars believe that this wasn't even a real actual place, that John was just kind of... Uh, drawing a mental picture for us, if you will, for the longest time. And then uh, only a few years ago with the uh, science of archaeology, archaeology, uh, archaeologists, excuse me, have actually uncovered this location and found with the acute accuracy with which John describes it, at the gate where he says it was, with a pool the way he says it was, and colonnades as he said they were. And so archaeologists come and provide for us a validation of the description that John gives to us. Now there is one thing I want to point out here. Verses, the second part of verse 3 and verse 4 are probably in your footnotes if you have an ESV. And that's for a reason. Because they add in the fact that uh, an angel of the Lord would come and stir the waters in order to bring healing. And whoever was first into the water would be the one that was healed at this time. Why would they drop that into a footnote and not keep it in the main text? Well, there were texts, original texts, old, old ancient manuscripts that were found that did not have this portion in it. And scholars have concluded that very likely a later scribe came and added that portion to help us understand why the invalids and the ill of society would gather at this pool. Not to say that Jesus actually, or that an angel of the Lord actually stirred the waters. There's no textual evidence that God is the one who sent an angel to stir the waters. 
but rather to help us understand the mindset of those who were gathered around the pool. Now hold on to that because that's a very important fact when we get into unpacking this man who was the invalid at the pool. What we do know is there was a pool and many of society's ill gathered there hoping to experience the water's medicinal purposes. And that is where Jesus chose to go, to visit the sick and the outcast of society. Now, let me point this out to you, friends, as well. When Jesus went back to Jerusalem, he never had to go even past this pool, yet alone to it. Anytime, anytime you see the actions of Jesus in Scripture, understand you are learning you are gaining insight to the character of God, okay? So when Jesus goes to the place where the outcast of society gathered, he did it because he wanted to be with them. And that's significant because that forms for us a true biblical understanding of the character and the nature of our God. That's important. And he encounters this invalid man who the scripture says had been invalid for 38 years. Now, very likely he was older than that, but that is the length of time that he had been invalid. And he asked a question. Seems a little obvious, does it not? Do you want to be healed? But he asked a question, and for us, when Jesus says something, that's what makes it important, right? Not whether it immediately applies to us or we fully understand it, but if Jesus says it, that makes it important, period, okay? And so we need to ask ourselves, why did he ask this question? Because the answer seems so obvious. Yet we're going to explore that in our time together today. When the sick man responds to him, he basically describes his life in two ways. I'm helpless and I'm hopeless. Every time the waters get stirred, I have no way to get in them. And I don't even have anybody here to help me, he said. And so someone else beats me into the water, and it's only the first person in the water that gets healed, so I'm really hopeless. There's always going to be somebody here who can get in the water before I can, and I don't think I'll ever be healed. 38 years, is pretty good validation for his argument, isn't it? Be careful what you agree with this morning I might be setting you up and so Jesus commands the man without any further comment question or otherwise get up take up your mat and walk and that's what the man does he gets up 38 years that's not insignificant when I reach that point in my life I'll, I'll know how long it's been he took up the mat that had held him all those years. And he walked. Walked. And here we see the first lesson of understanding God's work in our life. Are you ready? God comes to us to work for us. God comes to us to work for us. It may seem basic, it may seem so fundamental, but it is essential in our understanding about God. Hear me, friends. Life is not about you finding 
God. Life is not about you finding God. Life is not about your problems and your trials and your hardships and trying to figure out when it is that God will show up to help you. Life is not about your successes and your victories and all of your celebrations and thanking God for what He's enabled you to accomplish. Life is where God comes to us to work for us. And it begins in acknowledging that God is here for us. That is so contradictory to so many people's fundamental understanding of God. Every religion in the world teaches how you get to God. Christianity and Christianity alone proclaims God is here for us. Jesus didn't have to go to that pool. He chose to. Jesus didn't have to stop at this man and talk to him. Why did he? He chose to. Jesus didn't have to heal this man. Why did he? Listen, friends, you are seeing the character and the nature of God right now. Why didn't he? He did because he chose to. And while we know that Jesus didn't heal everyone at the pool that day, as far as we know because of what John says, we do know that Jesus healed this man, and that's what John focuses on to raise our awareness and bring these lessons to light that we might believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. You see, Jesus doesn't even allow all of our wrong understandings of God to hinder his willingness and his readiness to work for people. He doesn't allow our our wrong understanding to, to go, well, it's not even worth it anyway. Why mess with this? Rather, he comes to us as God and works for us. The man responds to Jesus with an understanding of God that is more dominated by the state of reality in his life than by the truth of the word that God has revealed to him. Here's his response. I'm helpless and I'm hopeless. And because of that, he had allowed the reality of his situation to dictate the understanding of God. What was his understanding of God? I think it was a pretty common one. God helps those. You can probably finish it, can't you? Who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. The problem is, I don't have a reference for that verse. The problem is, the verse isn't here. But what did he say? I can't get into the water. 38 years I've lived next to this pool, but I can't get into the water. I have no way to help myself. And if I don't get into the water, God's not going to help me. I don't even have someone here to help me. I don't have any way to help myself. I don't have anyone here to help me. I can't get to where God brings the help to. And if I can't get there, God won't help me. You see how it works? 
We don't necessarily say God helps those who help themselves, although yeah, actually we do say that. But he had allowed the details of his situation to determine his understanding of God and to dictate that in every part of life. You see, his only hope, what was his only hope? His only hope was a myth that had been propagated by culture, by broken ideologies, by, by functional saviors that people said, if you'll do this, God will do that. It, it, his only hope was in the fact that he had heard that, that these waters stirred and when they stirred, there would be a healing power if only you're the first one to get in them. You see, the problem with that and the reason that it's not here is there's no textual evidence for that. What was taking place, very likely, is that a scribe was helping us understand the mindset that he had embraced so deeply from all of society and he had imposed it upon God to say, this must be God because this seems to be the default defining reality of my situation he is no different from you and I every time we look at our situation and we impose upon God as to why he has or has not helped us we beckon upon God with the same helpless and hopeless argument that the invalid man raised to Jesus at that day you see the way that we respond to the helplessness and the hopelessness of our lives says much about how we perceive and what we believe about God. And I'm going to add another one to this that is so appropriate for us. How we respond to the successes, to the achievements, to the, to the victories and the celebrations of our life also reveal what we believe about God. The important part of this lesson that we must understand is this, friends. Problems Hardships and trials, victories, celebrations and accomplishments, they have a way of identifying and magnifying what it is that's really in us. You see, Jesus' question that, man, you, you know, it's like, it's like everybody's in the hospital room with him. And there's like 15, 20, 30 people. It's just really packed. And Jesus walks in and goes, hey, man, you want to be healed? Don't ask that question. We're in a hospital. Everybody's here to get healed. Right? And Jesus asked the question that, you know, everybody's kind of working through in their own mind and heart. But the fact of Jesus asking the question had much less to do with the inquiry into the man's feelings as much as it did a discernment of where the man's heart was. It's interesting how questions can draw out so many answers for us in life, is it not? The longer our problems, the longer our hardships or trials last, the more what is in us just seems to set in deeper and, and petrifies within us. If, in, if I can make an analogy that I'll come back and explain more fully later in the message. And when I use the word petrified, I'm not talking about fear. I'm petrified. But rather the petrification process whereby wood becomes stone. And I'll explain that to you in a moment. But it just sets up within us, friends, and causes us to think about ourselves and God and everything else in a way that is determined by the facts of the situation 
instead of the truth of God and His glory. You see, it's not that we don't want what God can do. (laughs) Of course we want what God can do. We want to be God after all, right? So surely we want what He can do. The point is, we want what God can do for us without what God wills upon us. And that's where the problem comes. That's what we'll see. Anxieties, cares, concerns, that they consume our lives every time we choose to focus on them instead of raising our eyes to see Christ. And I'll argue that celebrations and accomplishments and victories do the same thing. They consume us every time we choose to focus on them instead of honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. Helpless and hopeless is the state of every person without Jesus. That's what Romans 5 and uh, verses 6 and 8 tells us. It tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners are helpless and hopeless. That's the best description of the state of a sinner. And and the Bible tells us in Romans 5, 8 that at just the right time. Now that reference to time there is not the tick-tock of the clock. It's more a point or a moment within all of the paradigm of time in which we live but in which God is not bound by. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, Paul says in Romans 5, 8. And that's what we are seeing from John's gospel here. We may not feel it. We may not be as physically shackled by it, but it is no less true of us. God comes to us, but many miss God because they see no need for him in their life. And until we see ourselves as helpless and hopeless before God, We're not ready to receive the work of God. It's interesting how even with the invalid, it was the smallest bit of the hope of ability that led him to think he might be able to, if I could just get somebody here to help me. And it was all motivated by a cultural myth that's centered in the stirring of that water. We miss God in our problems, our hardships, and our trials. We miss him in our successes and our victories and our accomplishments and celebrations because we focus more on what's inside than the one who comes to us and is for us. We want what he can do. We just don't want his will imposed upon us. I want to share a song. Many of you will be familiar with it. It's a song written by a lady named Laura Story, and the title is called Blessings. And I believe it describes this tension that we feel in this situation. Verse 1 says, we pray for blessings, we pray for peace, we pray for comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, we pray for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering." And all the while you hear each spoken need. Yet, love is way too much to give us lesser things. What if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights is what it takes to know you're near? 
What if trials in this life are mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear. We cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness, we doubt your love, as if every promise from your word is not enough. And all the while, you hear each desperate plea and long that we would have faith to believe. When friends betray us, when darkness seems to win, we know that pain reminds us in our heart that this is not our home. What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst that this world cannot satisfy? What if trials in this life, the rain, the storm, the hardest nights, are your mercies in disguise? Here's an image of God, friends. The man who laid on that mat for 38 years picked it up one day after he stood up and carried it as he walked away. And here's an image of us. He didn't even give Jesus a glance when he left. Not a word. Not a word was said. You see, until we acknowledge that He is God and that we are not, that we're helpless and hopeless in need of Him, we're not really ready for Him to work. But all God's work in life has a much greater reality, a much greater glory, and a much greater good than that can only be found in this life. And so the question is, how much help has God given me that I just completely missed because I failed to glorify him in the midst of it. The first lesson to understand the work of God is that God comes to us to work for us. And we see that in the cross of Jesus Christ. Have you stopped in the midst of your problems, your hardship, your trial? Yea, even your successes and celebrations to confess your need for God, to thank Him, to praise Him, to glorify Him. Let's look at the next one. Second part of verse 9, John writes, Now that day was the Sabbath. That phrase right there creates the greatest conflict we should feel a twist in our soul. Let me give you an analogy of what that phrase really does to the whole storyline here. It is as if you, for the first time, have handed the keys to your car to your teenager and they have successfully navigated out of the driveway in reverse, backed out without taking out the neighbor's mailbox and put it in drive to successfully make their way down the street all the way out of sight and all of a sudden you hear a bang and a big crash occurs. So, wow, that's kind of morbid. 
It's just where I'm at in life right now. I don't know how else to describe it. That's the tension that that phrase creates. Let me tell you why. Look at verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Stop there for just a moment. The healing takes place on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the holiest day of the week, but it was also the holiest day of the year when it began the feasts of celebration for all the people. And that's the reason Jesus is back in Jerusalem. It was the Sabbath. The Sabbath the Sabbath was the highest of laws for the Jews, for what God had given them as a day of rest to bring honor and glory and to demonstrate faith in him, they had managed to turn it into a convolution of skewed belief about who God was. One commentator said this, that what started as an attempt to safeguard a holy day had become an over-regulation of oppression that skewed the true meaning of the day. You know what that describes for us right there? Every time we make a legalism in our life and we raise it to worship it above the one who is the truth for our life. That's what legalism does to us. It seems so good and they can serve a role until we raise them and over-regulate them to the point where we oppress our lives by them that's what they had done by the sabbath you see the law that said you shall keep the sabbath holy right that's the that's the ten commandment they had written volumes about what that meant and had become more enthralled with occupying themselves by obeying the laws of man than honoring god through the laws and the commandments that he had given That's what's taking place here. And when it refers in verse 10 to the Jews, it's not just talking about the Pharisees or the religious leaders, but it's talking about anyone who adhered to their religious tradition and held to it so that they could hold themselves over other people. That's what religion does, right? It helps me to look down my nose with greater accuracy at you. And that's what he's saying. So what John is saying to us is not just about those people and how wrong they were, but he's bringing any of us into it when religion fortifies us so much that we can condemn other people because of it. That's what he's telling us. And that's who he's talking about with the Jews. So every time it says the Jews, just know it could just as easily be you and I and it is us when we use religion to look down on other people. No matter how subtle it is. You see, here's the good thing about God, though, and the glorious thing about Jesus. Jesus never allows the rules of men, nor the, shall I say, bullying tactics of religion to govern the work of God. 
God's bigger than religion, friends. And God's bigger than the laws of man. One characteristic that's consistent with the nature of every person is this. And we see it again in the invalid man. We manage to blame our law-breaking on anyone else, even people we don't know. I don't know who he was. It's his fault, right? The problem for us is that he broke man's laws. We manage to do it when we break God's law. But it is a mirror for us to see how sin deceives us. The healed man didn't even know or understand who Jesus was. And so therefore, Jesus' work had very little effect on him. Remember when I said that our own hardships and trials and, 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 and uh, the things that, that come against us, our problems, and even our successes and our victories and our celebrations have a way of really identifying and revealing what's truly in us. That's what happened with this man. He not only didn't know who healed him, but until this point, he had taken no measure to find out because it had only fortified what was already in him. It had only solidified, petrified what was already taking place in him. That little bit of ability in which he held his hope had now come to full blossom. He was healed. He didn't need to know anything else. Now he could do whatever he wanted to, right? Because that's where his hope rested, in himself. And so Jesus later comes to him, and he finds him carrying his bed. A testimony that should have been a testimony of glory to God because of what Jesus had done, right? But really it was more of a testimony to his own ability because of what was really in his heart. And Jesus said to him, see, you've been made well. And you and I both know one thing, you didn't do it. There's two people in this world that know the truth about you and one that knows it better than the other. It's you and God and God knows more than you do. Right, You will not hide from God. And Jesus said, go and sin no more that something worse doesn't happen to you. What's he saying? There are worse realities in this world even than ailments that make us invalids for countless years. What's he talking about? He's talking about, friends, the condemnation ultimately of sin and how it deceives us. How common it is for us to be enthralled with the work of God more than the God of the work. And you know, Jesus doesn't just do random acts of goodness. Oh, that's so nice of him. Lucky guy. He's the one that got healed that day. I'm going to make sure I'm there the next time Jesus shows up. So maybe I'll be the lucky guy next time, right? Lucky. Lucky. No. Lucky is a convoluted deception ideology of Satan that makes us think fate and circumstance are real. God's sovereignty is real, friends. It's the only thing that's real. And when God's glory is denied, any goodness of the work dissipates from it. Always. This brings us to the second lesson in the work of God that we need to understand that when God comes to us to work for us, He confronts us in our sin and unbelief to lead us in walking in righteousness. 
That's the reason that he comes for glory, friends, for glory. Because without glory, there will be no goodness in our lives. And anything that we perceive as goodness that cannot be for God's glory is deceiving us and misleading us away from God. You see, the work of God will always confront sin and unbelief in our life. There will not be a time that God works for us when he comes to us that he will not confront sin or unbelief within us. Redemption is the very essence of all of God's work and redemption is when he conquers and crushes sin and death and the grave and gives resurrection and life and power for all eternity. There is no work of God in our lives without confronting our sin and unbelief and leading us to walk in his righteousness. The key is how will we respond to the work of God? And Jesus warns him, go and sin no more that a worse reality won't fall upon you. The worse reality being eternal damnation. For the, the reality of sin is incomparably worse than any reality that we could imagine or experience in this life. And any measure to which we don't fully believe that is unbelief of God in us. The way we respond to God's work in our life, it reveals what we believe about Jesus. And the way that we respond to God's work in our life reveals our very motivation for wanting God to work in our life. You see, real faith in life produces two distinct forms of worship. First of all, it's just gratitude. It's gratitude for the gift. It's gratitude for the work that God does. But it doesn't stay as gratitude for the gift. For our focus isn't consumed in the gift, but it moves to the giver through the gift. And so gratitude becomes praise. Thank you, God, for what you've done. Praise you for who you are. And may all of my life be lived for your honor and your glory. That's where faith leads you. It leads you out of the deception and the temptation of sin to walk in the way of God's righteousness. And it leads us and empowers us to walk in the way of obedience in Jesus' righteousness. You see, faith that produces thanksgiving, Praise and glory to Jesus also leads to a deeper repentance from our sin and obedience to his commands. Ask yourself this, how is it that I respond when God confronts my sin? When the Spirit brings conviction to you, does it frustrate you? Does the tension that it brings anger you? Does it irritate you? Do you get defensive? When you feel convicted? Do you point to all your good activity and the good that you've accomplished or the, the moments of your right behavior and go, God, why are you bothering me? Look at what I've done. Is all of your goodness and your morality used to offer a rationalistic justification before God as to why you can disregard his present conviction in your life? You see, every time the Spirit of God brings conviction, it will be a coup on our personal kingdoms. But conviction of the Holy Spirit is the currency of growth and maturity for the Christian life. There will be no growth. There will be no maturity without the Spirit's conviction. Jesus tells us in Romans that, that the Spirit of God will come and will bring conviction regarding sin. He will bring conviction regarding righteousness. He will bring conviction regarding judgment. And that conviction is for our good. It's, it's not condemnation, though we can confuse the two very easily. 
But if we live under self-rule, the conviction will always threaten, frustrate, and irritate us. When we live under the lordship of Jesus Christ, it will produce increasing joy because it will lead us into repentance. It will empower us to walk in righteousness, and it will produce in us for the glory of God a thanksgiving, a praise, a joy, a peace, a satisfaction, an understanding, and an obedience that brings this life into full submission to the God of all creation. This, friends, is the second lesson to understand how it is that God works in us. He comes to us to work for us, and he always confronts our sin and our unbelief that he might lead us to walk in his righteousness. That's how God works, and that's what Jesus is doing in the life, not only of the invalid here, but in all of those who have separated themselves and continue to fortify their lives in religion as a substitute for salvation in Jesus. The third lesson brings these others into focus. It's this third lesson that we see here by John's commentary through Jesus' response and explaining the situation. It's this third lesson that guards us against just reducing God's work to religion. Had a great day at church today. Probably won't matter much by noon Monday, but, you know, religion. It guards us against reducing God's work only to moralism. <laughs> Man, I did pretty good there, right? It, redu- it guards us from reducing God's work in our life to hyper-spirituality. Mm. Ooh, I got to run after that again. What candles did I light? Where did I put them? I'm being a little sarcastic there. It's okay to grin, right? It guards us from reducing the work of God to covert self-righteousness. Wow. I'm better than I thought. (laughs) I surprise myself. It guards us. And here is where that guardian comes. All God's work centers in Jesus because he is God. If you can't find Jesus, you've not found the work of God in your life yet. Let me read for us verses 16 to 18. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Friends, the third lesson that we need to learn today to understand the work of God is that all of God's work centers in Jesus because he is God. That's what he shows. He says, the Father is working and I am working. Do you know what he says there? My work is God's work. We are one. And that's the very thing that drove the Jews, the religious people, nuts. He unites himself with the Father. He validates his work as the Father's work. And you see what happens is religion and self-righteousness petrifies in us and the unbelief that we're living out of in order to prevent God's work to us when we do not respond to Jesus in faith. Let me briefly explain the petrification process to you. When a piece of wood falls off the trees in the woods, falls to the ground, it becomes covered. It's, 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 what, how would you describe that piece of wood for its future? Maybe living for the moment, but you could pretty well say it's helpless and hopeless, right? That piece of wood is not going to get up and walk back and reattach itself to the tree. And any measure of people to do that for it is going to fail. 
Not even duct tape is helpful here. And the organic matter begins to heap up on top of it through the days and the weeks and the months and the years go by. And as all that organic material covers it, the waters filter down through it. And the water has minerals in it, stones, literally. And those stones find their way into the wood. And the, 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 um, the lines in the wood, whatever that's called, I can't remember it right now, catch the minerals and hold them and they begin to form over time into one. Until that piece of wood actually becomes something totally different. A hard stone. Now think about your life. And how unbelief. Heaped up with all the situations and the circumstances of life. And, and, and how our hardships and our trials and our problems. And even our successes and our victories and our celebrations just heap up. And they just cover us in this life. And, and, and the water filters down through us. And, but, but, but when we see the work of God around us, we don't really see God. What we see is ourself. And it begins to petrify what's really in us. So that even the work of God itself can't get to us. And over time, it just hardens us. Just hardens us. What you believe about God will determine what you become. The work of God, understanding it, centers in one person. Jesus reveals himself that he is God so that we can believe and follow him.